we're, uh, we're diving into our, our Christmas season here. Uh, and I had some people asking me last night um, about these wings that are up here. And I just want to make it clear they're not mine. Okay. Uh, so I just, there was a lot of questioning about that last night. So I just want to clarify that. No, we're going to get into it, why we have these up and what we're looking at. Uh, but I wanted to start with a question here uh, for you. And, and here's my question. Have you ever been around someone that you just, you were not sure if you could trust them? Like, have you ever, you ever seen someone and you're just not sure, like maybe there's something just off about them or maybe you know them or you know their history and they have kind of this untrustworthy past. Some of you are looking at me like I'm that person right now. I understand. But here's, here's the thing. When I think of this untrustworthiness, one of the people I think of is my wife. Not because she's untrustworthy, okay? But my wife went through a season where at one point she decided that she was going to start pranking me or trying to. I say trying to because Janae is not very good at hiding anything or keeping secrets of any sort. She's not very good at that. And, and so she would attempt to pull these pranks, but she always kind of gave it away by going, hey, come in here and look at this thing. And I'd be like, okay, here we go. There's, hey, I have something to show you. Or, hi, how are you? Like there was always this real awkward thing. One day uh, I, I came home and, and Janae goes, how are you? And I'm going, well, I'm about to get you know, pranks. So real good. I can tell. And she, she was like, yeah, yeah, you're okay. And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And I walked into our room and I flipped on the light switch and there's Janae behind me. And she's like, (laughs) she's so excited about what's going to happen. And nothing happened. And I'm thinking, I don't understand what's going on. And then all of a sudden a, a pile of confetti fell in one large lump off of our ceiling fan onto our bed. She expected I'd flip the switch and it would throw all over the room and go crazy, and, and it, it didn't. It literally like went around three times and then just dropped in one pile, which is way easier to clean up. Those are good pranks right there. <laughs> Janae was like, oh, man. Like, she was so bummed, and I'm going, good one. Uh, but here's, here's the thing is she's not, a very, she's not the most clever prankster, and that's okay because I can trust her. Though almost every time now that she says, hey, I have something to show you, I question what I'm walking into now. So maybe she is doing something right here because I feel I'm on my toes now all the time about what might drop off the ceiling fan on me. Um, so I, I know I can trust her because she's not very good at hiding anything. And, and now I'm sure as she's seeing, you know, hearing me share this, she's going to take it as a challenge and I'm going to pay for this for a long time. But uh, I will keep record of every prank she now pulls on me as she sees this challenge ahead of her. Uh, but there are times in our lives where we struggle to trust the people around us or we struggle to trust someone just because of things that we've seen or ways that they've been, uh, things that they've said. But, but today I want to look at not just the times where we struggle to trust people, but, but times where we are struggling to trust God. See, we're starting a series today leading up to Christmas that's called Fear Not. I don't know if you know this, but Fear Not is the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Over 365 times in the Bible, we are commanded to, to fear not, to, to not be afraid, to take courage over fear, to trust over fear, to find peace over fear, and to hold to hope over fear. 365 times. All throughout the Christmas story in Scripture, we see moments when angels would appear. And every time an angel would appear before someone, what is it that they always had to say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't freak out. (laughs) Well, why is that? Well, because when something appears in front of you out of nowhere and then you realize it's not from this world, it kind of, it might scare you a little bit, right? Think about it. You're walking around a corner of your house and all of a sudden, boom, there's an angel in front of you. You're probably going to have to hear, hey, calm down. It's okay. 
And we're going to look at four times over the next four weeks where angels appeared. And the first thing they have to say is fear not. And we're going to look through these stories to see beyond just that instant fear and see what fears were going on in the lives of those that they were appearing to and how we battle through the same things. Uh, today we're going to be starting this by looking at Luke chapter 1 in the moment when a man named Zechariah received a message from God through the angel Gabriel. Now Zechariah is a priest. He, he is uh, part of the 8th of 24 divisions of priests uh, who serve in the temple. How this worked is that uh, about two times a year for eight days, uh, they would serve. Their division would be called to serve in these specific roles. Each division had about 830 priests in it. And so we're talking 20,000 priests across these divisions. And, and he's one guy out of all of that. And, and it's his turn to serve. One of his eight-week times that happens about every six months He's at the temple, and, and some incredible things are about to happen. But the story's not just about Zechariah. We're going to be talking about his wife, Elizabeth, as well. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were known for how they served God. He was a priest in the temple, and, and, and they walked with God. They did things uh, in this upright way, and they, they were known for serving God strongly. They were older, and, and Elizabeth has uh, not had any kids. She was barren. She was unable to have children. And these are important things to understand as we get into this story here. Now, in this, Zechariah, he, he gets to the temple to serve and they would have cast lots, kind of a rolling of the dice to see who was supposed to be serving in, in each specific role. So it's already uh, it, pretty incredible that Zechariah is there. This is his time to serve at this time, at this purpose. And then, not only that, but out of the 830 priests that would have been in his division, there's only four main jobs that need done, and Zechariah, by a rolling of the dice, is selected to be the one who goes before God to stand at the altar of incense and wait alone for a signal from outside to light that incense and lift prayers up on behalf of the people that are joining him outside. So he walks in with a team of people to help get everything set up, and now he's standing alone as they leave. He is the last guy waiting before the altar of incense in the temple alone. All I'm going to tell you is this, that if God wants you somewhere, he's going to make it happen, and that's what's happening with Zechariah. He brought about this incredible thing. This is a once-in-a-lifetime thing for any of the priests that they would be in this moment, and not all of them would get to do this. And so here's Zechariah standing there alone, and we're going to step in uh, at that point in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 11. It says, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is big news. This is a huge announcement that's coming in, right? Because there's so much that's going on and we could get into all the prophecies that are being fulfilled in this statement, but I want to I want to just look at for just Zechariah here the news that he has just received. 
This is massive stuff here. An angel appears after all that God has just orchestrated, and he is now in this honorable position with an angel appearing, telling him that God has heard his prayer and is going to be providing for him something that he has longed for for a long time. That's incredible news. We'd be pretty amazed at that, right? You would think that he would be excited about that. But for some reason, Zechariah doesn't seem to have such a great reaction as we continue reading in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, what just happened here with Zechariah? What kind of a reaction was this? All of this that God clearly orchestrates to bring you to this incredible moment, incredible message of joy and hope. And he says, what? You, you see, we read Zechariah's words a little more innocently than they were said. We read it like this where he's going, well, how's this going to happen? I don't understand. How does this work? I'm, I'm an old man. We, we read it as if he's kind of excited, but just, just at this point of going, well, I don't get it. How's it going to work? That's, that's not what he said. That's not his attitude. We know that because uh, of Gabriel's response to his attitude. Here's what Zechariah actually said. He said, I'll believe it when I see it. That was his attitude. He had an attitude of, yeah, I don't, I don't think this is actually going to happen. After everything he just saw come into place, he still doubts and questions. He still goes, I, I don't think this can happen. I know that you're capable of amazing things, God, but... This? Uh, I'm not sure. But why? Why did a, a, a man who followed God and walked in righteousness have such a distrust of God? Why, why does a priest in the temple not trust God at his word when God sends a messenger to him? What, what has happened that has caused him to have such a distrust of God at his word? And I'm going to flip this question around on us here, and I'm going to ask this. Why, why do you have such a distrust of God at his word? Why do we tend to have this? And, and I ask this, it's because it's likely that you and Zechariah have more in common when it comes to your trust of God than you may realize. And so we're gonna take a look at, at our, uh, a little deeper into what's happening by breaking down this kind of lack of trust into three different categories. The first one here that we're gonna look at, I call the wait. Uh, how good are you at waiting? Anybody feel like they're a super patient person and they love, they love waiting on stuff? I don't ever see hands go up I, at this one. Nobody really likes to wait, right? This time of year is tough for me for kind of a weird reason. Uh, and it's not because I'm this Grinch or a Scrooge about things when it comes to Christmas, but because I love giving presents, but I hate to wait for them to be opened. I don't like that side of waiting. I, my wife gets really annoyed at me uh, because I'll buy her something and then I spend the next three weeks going, hey, you should just open it. You should just open it. We're not even going to be home on Christmas anyways. We're probably going to be traveling. It's not, it's not worth waiting. You'll like it now. Just open it now. A couple, uh, uh, about a month ago, she, she pointed out a hoodie 
hoodie that she wanted. She sent it to me and said, I, I'd like this for Christmas. And I was like, okay. So I bought it for her and I gave it to her. Um, and she's like, I wanted this for Christmas. Merry Christmas. And, then, and I'm like, enjoy it. Like, and she wears it all the time and she loves it. I'm like, see, I was right. But she, here's the thing. She wants that day to be special and I want the gift to be special. We just have a different priority when it comes to this. And it's tough for me to wait for that uh, because I don't like to wait in this. Patience is not an easy thing for us, especially when we don't understand why we have to wait, right? If we understand why we have to wait, then it makes sense. It doesn't take much trust for us to go through that. But when we don't get the why, man, our trust just disappears real quick. I have to have an explanation first. If, if you'll explain to me why I'm waiting, then I can wait. Otherwise, uh, I'm not so sure. See, Zechariah didn't understand the why. And there's something in this text that we read that you probably missed Gabriel, the angel, appeared to him and said, your prayer has been heard. The interesting thing is, is that we automatically assume that Zechariah was there at the altar of incense and he's, he's spending this time waiting for a signal and he's praying to God uh, for a son. He's praying, God, would you, would you provide for us? Would you give us a child? That's what we assume. But that's not what the text says. That's not what Gabriel said. In fact, the words that he used show us something totally different. And it makes a lot of sense, actually. He actually said these words, your prayer was heard, and it's as in a past tense. What, what he's saying here, the indication is that something uh, had happened that was different. Zechariah and Elizabeth, as we see, they're beyond childbearing years, right? So, so they're past this point when they would have been constantly praying for a child. What Gabriel is saying is that a prayer that you had prayed before has been heard and is being answered. This is most likely a prayer that Zechariah is not praying anymore as he's older, as his wife is beyond the ability to, to have kids. She's, she's past that age and that time. There's no way this can happen, and so they would have stopped praying for this long before this time. It's, it's an interesting thing in that it kind of explains a little bit more of why Zechariah responded the way that he did is because he had kind of given up on waiting for this. The wait had been so long that there was no point in praying for this anymore or even thinking about it. The specific ceremony he's there to be part of is a solemn one. He's not supposed to be in there praying for his own things and for his own wants. He's supposed to be representing the people that are outside the temple that at the signal will drop on their faces and join him in this prayer on their behalf. He's not even thinking about that when he's in there. He's doing the, the job that he was selected to do to honor God with a specific ceremony that they're involved in. This, this whole thing would have been out of context. And for him, it was not something that he was sitting there thinking about. This was a painful subject to him. At some point, Zechariah had come to a realization that he wasn't going to have children. That his family line would end with him. God had not found him worthy of the blessing of children. And based upon his reaction to the news, there was some bitterness in his heart over this reality. You see, Zechariah had a time in his life that had been perfect to have kids. It had been a great thing, a perfect season for raising them up, for teaching them, investing them, training them up. And that season was gone. It was done. The timing didn't fit, and therefore there was no way that it was ever going to happen. Zechariah, who had trusted God would bless him with offspring and had prayed deeply and desperately for it, was left empty-handed in this area and had lost trust in the God who he had served fervently. But isn't it just typical of God to wait until there's no way to then make a way, right? We see this in the specific kind of story over and over again in Scripture. I think of Abraham and Sarah. 
Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, the Shunammite woman who cared for Elisha, Hannah and the mother, uh, the mother of Samuel. These are all women who were barren, who were unable to have kids, who some of them were older in age, beyond childbearing years, and God makes a way. These would not have been foreign stories. This was a, a common narrative through the Old Testament for Zechariah, and he knew very well that God could have given him a child at any point. He knew that there was nothing about the, the barrenness of his wife that was stopping God from giving them a child. God could have done it at any point. He knew that, but God didn't do it. And that would have caused pain and bitterness and struggle. That's why we see him react with this. Well, I'm not sure if I believe you. The question is, when it comes to time, what's your limit? When do you stop praying and trusting? What, how long past this perfect timing window are you willing to still trust and seek after God? I think uh, about my brother and his wife who've battled infertility for eight years, constantly going through treatment after painful treatment, hoping and praying and waiting and wanting only to have another year pass by where God doesn't answer their prayer. I've seen the pain that Zechariah and Elizabeth would have felt on the face of my brother and his wife as they, they try to go through and celebrate with, with the rest of us when we announce that we're pregnant with, with the birth of a child, but they, they celebrate through tears because it hurts. It is painful and it is hard and it is awkward and, and it's just not a comfortable thing and they've struggled through this. The, the beauty in this is that while God has not answered that prayer in the way that they desired when they first prayed it, two weeks ago they were able to adopt a little baby girl. Such an exciting thing. Last week we got to go and visit and meet her and celebrate with them. I got to see the joy on their faces as they celebrate God's answer to their prayers. But here's the thing, whether it's infertility or sickness, freedom, wisdom, whatever we're seeking from God, timing tends to be a pretty big reason why we doubt and lose trust in God. What's something that you have given up on God over just because it didn't happen when you wanted it to? What's something that, that you, you've struggled to continue to trust him in because you've had to wait too long? I want you to think about that today. We struggle to trust him because his timing doesn't match ours, but there's more to our struggle than just timing. The first is the wait, and the next is a season that I like to call the wander. Have you ever decided to walk somewhere uh, thinking this would be really good for me? It's not that far. I can handle this. No big deal. Uh, I need some exercise anyways, only to find that it was a lot further than you thought. I think of all the times I'll be heading into town from Mitchell uh, over to Scotts Bluff just to, uh, uh, to, to go through and, and shop, you know, pick up groceries, whatever it is. And I'm pulling out of Mitchell and I see someone walking down uh, Highway 26 or getting on a bike and starting to ride. And they're going to go between Mitchell and Scotts Bluff. And I always shake my head going, oh no, what are you doing? I don't think you realize what's about to happen. And you go and you do your grocery shopping, you get all that stuff done, you, you turn around and come back an hour, hour and a half later and they're still walking in that direction. And you can see their shoulders are kind of sunk down a little bit and they're struggling a little more, but they don't want to ride because this is about fitness. And you're, you're driving all the way back going and they're going to have to walk all the way back too. <laughs> it's a long ways. I think of a time where Janae and I, we took our son Micah and we went up to the Black Hills. We decided we're going to go hike uh, and, and one of the days that we were up there, like, let's go. There's a trail that we found uh, using this app that, that brings up all these trails. It's rated as really easy. And, and I'm kind of an easy trail guy. That's what I wanted to go do. Janae doesn't like to hike too much either. So it was like, let's just go. We're going to be carrying Micah in this like hiking backpack thing. Let's not do something ridiculous. Let's just go on this simple one. So we found one. It was like two miles long. Not a big thing. You get to see this cool water feature in the middle of it. 
cool, we can do it. It was rated super easy. So we pull up, we're excited. We get all loaded up. I put on this, this pack. We put Micah in it. He's looking around and excited. And, and we start heading down the trail. It's clearly marked. We've studied the map. We know how it goes. We keep going and we're walking, just enjoying it. It's amazing. We get about an hour down the path and, and I realize we haven't hit the first like big curve that we were supposed to hit. There's supposed to be this curve that takes us around and starts looping us back so that, that we're going on, on, you know, back towards the parking lot by now. We've been walking quite a while. We come around one corner and, and it starts to go uphill. And we're going, well, we're in the hills. No big deal. You know, let's, let's go up the hill. And we're climbing up. And I remember the path just kind of fading out a little bit. And it turned into a lot more rocks around us. And we're kind of going, what is happening? But we look down. And you could see down below us, the path continues. We're going, okay, maybe we'll just we'll get down. It'll turn back. It'll be no big deal. We, we keep going. I think we were about three hours in when we hit the first real turn that was heading back. And I'm going, what have we done? What is going on here? We come to this river crossing and there's this little like plank going across a river that was flooding and hitting water against it. And I've got Micah and the little backpack on. I don't like heights and I don't like little things over rushing water, especially when I'm carrying a child. So we made it across this. We had to cross a couple of those. We finally come to a parking lot. And this parking lot's not the one that we had parked in, but we see it and we're like, okay, what is this? We're looking. We find out it's about the halfway point on this trail. We thought we were going on a two-mile hike. It was, it was about four hours later that we make it all the way back. I think we ended up going somewhere between six to eight miles that day on this hike. Micah slept the whole time. I'm leaning against tree after tree just to relieve my back for a little bit, going, what's happening? Sometimes the journey is worth the destination. Other times it just wears you out, right? We got in the car and we're like, that was awesome. Let's never do that again. Like, it was, it was so great. <clears throat> Zechariah had his struggles in their situation, but Elizabeth was going through a totally different situation. You see, to be a barren woman in their time and culture was horrible. That was awful. You were seen as cursed, despised, hated by God. People didn't want to associate with you because they didn't know what that would mean for them. Clearly, there was some hidden sin that you were being punished for, some, some sin of, of your parents or, or your grandparents that was now being poured out on you, this punishment. That's why you couldn't have kids. Elizabeth would have been teased, ignored, disrespected, told constantly that she was less than, treated as worthless and in pain with every celebration of someone else's pregnancy or birth. It was a painful journey that she didn't expect to be on so long and, and with every passing day, she felt further and further from the destination that she was seeking until one day it hit her. I'm never getting there. I'm not gonna make it there. She, just like her husband, at some point had realized that she would never be able to have a child and therefore had lost trust in God for that. The wandering through it all always had this small hope that one day it would happen, but now she had embraced her bitter identity as a failure in their culture a despised, rejected, unworthy woman. This journey would have left her broken. And we see that brokenness in her response to, to her pregnancy in verses 24 and 25. It says, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Okay, so God has finally answered her prayer. She is pregnant. But then she goes into hiding for five months. What's going on with this? Why is she hiding 
for this. Well, I want you to imagine something with me. You, you've spent your whole life having people look at you as a disgrace, a failure, broken, unworthy. They pity you. And now all those same people are, are around you, amazed and celebrating what's finally happened for you. Might be a little awkward, don't you think? It would be a little strange, the people that were looking at you yesterday going, well, you know, you're just, you're, you're not as worthy. Only to the next day go, hey, this is awesome. This is so good. Let me, let me come alongside you. Probably awkward, painful. Something that was a little overwhelming for her. She may have wanted to avoid a little bit of that. But here's another thing is, you think about this, Elizabeth in her older age was probably fearful that her pregnancy wasn't going to make it. Wasn't going to last. And she feared that this couldn't happen still, even though it was happening. She heard what God had promised she knew that this, this was happening and yet at the same time struggled to believe that it would actually come to be. And so she would spend five months alone, damaged by the journey that she'd been wandering on. And when that journey was over, there was still so much healing to do. When we're in the wander seasons, it can be very hard for us to trust God because it seems like he isn't hearing us. Did you see her words in there when, when she said, in the days when you looked at me, the days when you finally looked upon me, she had this feeling that God had just not heard her, had not seen her, didn't know she was really there, didn't really care about her enough to recognize her. And she's saying, you finally saw me. And you finally heard my prayer. And, and I'm glad that you're taking away my reproach, but there's pain in that. You ever been in a season like that where you, you're going, God, I don't think you, you hear me. I don't think you really see me in the struggle that I'm in. Because if you did, there's no way you'd just let this go on. God, what's, what's wrong? Why are you not answering me? This is what Elizabeth is battling in her wandering. We long for the experiences that we had before where God had done something amazing. Or maybe we've seen him do amazing things in the lives of people around us. And we want that, that excitement of that time that God did something. The joy of having what it is that we desire, that God has provided. And we lose sight of the fact that we have something far greater with us in every step of the wandering. We stop trusting God who over and over again has declared truths in his word like this in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. In Philippians 1.6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be, bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. These verses talking about the fact that God is sanctifying and bringing together his people. Believers are being made more into the image of his son Jesus. But he is doing this work and it shows us something. That God has a plan, he has a purpose, and he brings together his will in his timing. And it's right and it's perfect and it's good and it's pleasing, but we stopped trusting him because the journey was difficult. The journey was hard. We get stuck in the middle of the wander and we allow the noise of the world around us to convince us that God isn't trustworthy anymore. We give up on him just as Zachariah and Elizabeth had far before he's ever done with us. We forget that our fulfillment isn't found in receiving the blessing, but is only found in the blessing giver. Last week, Pastor John talked through a little bit of Philippians 4, and I wanted to remind you of a truth that Paul shares for those that are walking through a season of wander. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
This verse that, that people like to write on the side of their basketball shoe, right? Because we like to read it and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we, we love this verse because it's this idea in our eyes that we can accomplish great and mighty things. And Paul's not talking about accomplishing anything. He's talking about making it through anything. I can survive anything. I can walk through anything. I can be sustained in anything, not because of what I have or don't have, but simply because I have him. I have the one who gives me strength, Christ, who gives me strength. I don't need all of this other stuff. I am content no matter my circumstances. That's what this verse is about. That's what he's talking about here. Is there something that you've been waiting on for so long that you've given up on God? Have you walked through pain and struggle that has hardened your heart with bitterness towards him? Have you been seeking after what he can do instead of after him? The wander can be a very hard season, but when my contentment is based in the certainty of God instead of the uncertainty of my circumstances, I can do all things, I can walk through all things, I can find joy in all things and hold the hope in all things, and I can trust in all things. That's what, what the challenge is as we go through the wandering. Maybe for you it's not waiting or wandering that's your main struggle when it comes to trusting God. Instead, it's just the way that he does it. If you've spent any amount of time studying the Bible, you've probably seen that God doesn't always do things the way that you would. In fact, he rarely does, right? He tends to do things so differently. And we all marvel at some of these stories. I think of Abraham and Sarah when, when they are blessed with Isaac. We marvel at this. This couple that's in their 90s. There's no way they should be having kids. There's no way that this is possible. But God's promised it. And he makes it happen. And we marvel at it. We're going, this is an incredible thing. But I want you to think about this. None of us want to be planning our 99th birthday party slash baby shower. No one wants that. That's awkward. That's weird. You think about for Abraham, him going, hey, I might get to see my son once or twice before I die. I don't know what's coming. You got to think about how weird that situation is and how that's not the way we would do it or want it. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, God was doing something incredible, but he was doing it in a way that was not what they had hoped for or asked for or wanted. How often is that us, though? To find, uh, finally receive from God something incredible, but to immediately feel our hearts complaining because, well, it would have been nicer to, or it would have been better if, or ah, this, would, this could have been so much better if it would have happened when. How quickly do we fall into these complaining modes over God's blessing because it's not the way that I would do it? How often do we fail to praise God for who he is and celebrate what he has done because it wasn't done our way? What is something that God has blessed you with that you failed to, to give him praise and thanks for? Because it wasn't done your way. What, what prayer has he answered even a way that you didn't plan for or expect that you need to recognize today? In, in what ways are you holding back worship that he deserves from your heart because he didn't earn it in the way you thought he should? Has your desire to control the how broken your trust in the who? In all of this waiting and wandering and wanting it our way, there's a question that comes up that needs to be answered. And here's that question. Is he really trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? And I believe that there's more than enough evidence given to us to prove God's trustworthiness. And I want to close today by showing you the greatest of all that evidence, in my opinion. In the beginning, God made mankind with a purpose in his image. And that purpose was this, relationship. To be in an intimate, close, real relationship with the God of the universe. That's what you were designed for. 
God shows us a glimpse into that design through the story of Adam and Eve. He creates everything simply by speaking it all into existence. Think about this. He says, let there be light. And what happens? Light shows up. He forms these planets. He forms earth and there's water everywhere. He says, let there be land. And land just rises up out of the water. He just speaks. He says, let there be animals. And animals rise up out of the dirt. It is crazy to think about what's going on here. And then God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over everything creeping that creeps on the earth. Then Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Imagine that moment. God, who's been speaking everything into existence, he's been proclaiming things and they're happening, suddenly gets down on his knees in the dirt, in the mud, and he starts forming together something different. Just the way that he did it shows something was about to change. And he gets down and he forms together this mud man and breathes life into him. Adam opens his eyes. What's the first thing he sees? The mud-covered face of God smiling at him, helping him stand up. Not long after, Eve opens her eyes and what's there? God having just formed her, helping her stand up, showing her all of creation. Think about the intimacy of this connection. Think about how beautiful this moment really is. This relationship displayed there. We see this relationship continued on as we look in Genesis 3 verse 8. The very beginning of this verse tells us something amazing about God's interactions with them. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is a sad verse, actually, because it's right after Adam and Eve have sinned and God comes to walk in the garden, which they don't freak out and hide because they're like, whoa, we didn't expect God to show up. They hide because of their sin and their shame and they're, they're ashamed and hiding because they, they don't want him to see their nakedness that they suddenly realize they're in. But the idea that God showed up to walk with them didn't freak them out. That was normal. I love that. The, the idea of God showing up in the cool of the day to stroll through the garden, enjoy his creation, and spend time with his kids. This beautiful relationship that they were created for. This is the design that you were made for. Face-to-face, real relationship with God. But there is a problem, sin. We, we just talked about this, and Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, God has a standard of perfection that every single one of us has failed and fallen short of, and we've missed the mark. That's what the word sin means, to miss the mark. And now we are separated from the very purpose that we were created to be in. It it is a painful thing. And from the very first time anyone sinned, though, God declared what would need to be done. Adam and Eve, here's what they did. They sinned, they realized that they were naked, they immediately felt shame, and they went, we got to hide from each other. They've spent their entire existence around each other naked, no big deal. But the moment shame comes in, the moment sin comes in, they go, i got to hide. I even have to hide from you that I've been around for my entire life. I have to hide. So what do they do? They gather fig leaves together and they sew together these clothes to cover up their shame. God shows up and he sees these fig leaves and he goes, that's not going to work. We do the same thing. Did you know that? You do something wrong, you do something sinful and you know it's wrong and what do you do? You do a bunch of good things to cover it up. 
You sew together some fig leaf clothes of good deeds. You try to display yourself as a good person so that no one would see your shame and your sinfulness. We hide and we try to cover these things up. This is how most of us live our lives thinking that that's a relationship with God is that I've done bad and now I've got to do good to make him happy again. But God says that doesn't work. What does it say that God did? It says that he made for them clothes from animal skins. Here's what that means is that God shed the blood of an animal to create and make something for them that would cover their, their, their shame. He was declaring something that we see laid out in Hebrews 9.22. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. God shed blood as a representation of foreshadowing of what was going to be required and what was to come. He already knew. He already knew far before this what was to come and what would be required. And here in this truth is where we see something incredible happen. This is where we see that Jesus came to pay the debt that we owed for our sins. This is God in flesh, the one whose birth we celebrate this time of year. He came and shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And he knew that he was gonna have to suffer and die. Sometimes I think we think Jesus just didn't see it coming. And so he was okay going through it because it kind of was sprung on him. No, he knew. He knew before the foundations of the world were laid, he knew what was coming. He knew as he stood in heaven and was looking at the brokenness of the world and saying, you've prepared for me a body To the father, he was saying, let me go. I'm ready to go do this. I know what is coming. He knew when he walked on earth. In Luke 9, 22, we see Jesus saying, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He he talked about his death and predicted it over and over and over again. He knew what was coming. I think of him sitting in the garden of Eden or the garden of Gethsemane. And he's knowing exactly how painful it's going to be, how hard it's going to be, the suffering he's about to go through. And it is so intense as he cries out to the Father and says, take this cup from me, this cup of suffering. I don't want to drink of that, but not my way, not my will, yours be done. Three times he pleads with the Father to take this away. It's getting so intense that the capillaries in his pores burst and he's sweating drops of blood. You want to talk about intensity, knowing what was coming. He knew what he was about to suffer and go through. He knew the pain that was there. And this is where the trustworthiness of God comes in. He could have at any moment said, you know what, I'm I'm not going to go through with this. I don't want to, and I don't have to. They're not worth it or worthy of it. He could have done that and just walked away. God, at any point, the one who spoke all things into existence, could have snapped his fingers and erased everyone's memories, wiped out the whole law, all the history of it. Nobody would have known that there was supposed to be a required shedding of blood for forgiveness of sins, and he could have made it a whole lot easier on himself without anyone ever knowing or thinking any less or different of him. God could have done that. But here is where we see the trustworthiness of God. He held himself accountable to his own law so that we could be brought back into a restored relationship with him. That's the relationship you were created for. How incredible is that? You want to see the trustworthiness of God. Look at all he was willing to suffer knowing full well that he could have manipulated it all without anyone knowing and made it way easier on himself. But why? Why did he choose to suffer? I'm going to give you two reasons today. 
Reason number one is this, is so that you would know he's trustworthy. As you're going through a season of waiting or wandering, as you're looking at the ways he's doing stuff and going, I'm just not sure about this. God, are you trustworthy? We can look back at what he was willing to suffer on our behalf. As we celebrate communion today, that's what I want you to think about. As you see the body broken and the blood poured out and we remember what he has done, I want you to think about the fact that his trustworthiness is displayed in his action for you on the cross. Shows that he is trustworthy and he is trustworthy in whatever season you're going through. And reflect on that. Take some time to to let him speak to you and and point out to you areas in your life that you've been going, I'm not sure if I'm going to trust you here, God. Remember what he has done and what that means in the reality of what you're going through. That's that's reason number one I want to give you today, but reason number two is important here. And, And here's why he was willing to suffer, so he could have you back. I read in Hebrews 12 too, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We read this and and we go, okay, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was willing to go through this because of the joy set before him. And then we read the end of the verse and it says, and now he's seated at the right hand of the father. We think, okay, so this was it. He earned a place of honor, this high seat for what he was willing to go through and suffer. But you need to know something. He had that before the world was formed. He had that honor. He had that place. He didn't need to earn that. That was his You see, that's not the joy that was set before him. He didn't come to earn that. He gave that up to earn the joy that was before him. And here's what that joy was. You being brought back into the relationship you were created for. That is what he was willing to go through for you. To suffer and to die a death that he did not deserve. To take away the punishment that you do deserve. And what's amazing about this is that anyone who trusts in Jesus and his sacrifice on their behalf, his death paying the full debt that they owed to God for their sins, trusts in his death on their behalf and his resurrection, God bringing him back from the dead and declaring that payment accepted on your behalf. Anyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. Life that cannot be taken from you because that life with Jesus starts the moment you put your faith in him and lasts forever. Tells us in the book of John, Jesus himself saying, anyone who has been given to me has been placed in the Father's hand and there is nothing strong enough to take you from his hand. That means nothing anyone says to you or does to you, nothing Satan himself comes at you with is strong enough to take you from the Father's hand. And there is nothing that you can do, no amount of sin that you can commit that is greater than his grace and forgiveness for you. Your sin does not nullify his sacrifice. You are in his hand and you are not strong enough to take yourself out. It is guaranteed the Holy Spirit has sealed you and guaranteed as a deposit of God on you that you will receive the inheritance of heaven that he has earned for you. It's a beautiful thing. And and here's the thing, if you're here today and you have not yet put your faith in Jesus as the one and only way for you to be saved, you've been trusting in your fig leaves and good works, thinking that you might be able to earn it. That's not what scripture requires. That's not what God requires according to his law. But if you're here and you're realizing that you've never trusted in Jesus and him alone, I'm gonna invite you as we close to do that today, to put your faith in Jesus to save you, that you can step from death into life in this moment. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. It's nothing specific or special that we're gonna say. 
It's just expressing what's going on in your heart to God. You can ignore everything I'm saying and just talk to God yourself. But I ask you, if you're here and you're realizing that you've never trusted in Jesus, but you're understanding the gospel, this good news for the first time, call out. Call out to God because whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved and will never be put to shame. For those of you that already have your faith in Christ, I want to challenge you to see that the one who endured the cross will not abandon you, ignore you, or forget you. He will endure alongside you for a greater purpose and outcome as you trust him in the waiting and the wandering and in the ways that he does things. I'm going to challenge you to think through that as you take communion. To spend time reflecting on what that means and where you need to be trusting him. But for those of you who have not yet put your faith in Christ and are ready to, as we pray right now, I'm going to ask you to join me in this. So I'm just going to ask everybody to just close your eyes. And if you're here today and have not yet put your faith in Jesus and are ready to, just pray this with me. Say, God, I know that I was made to be in a relationship with you. But God, I've sinned. I've missed the mark. The requirement that was on me in order to be in that relationship, I fell far short of. And God, I know that because of my sin, I'm separated from you. And there's no amount of my good deeds that are going to take care of that, God, because you require the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins. And God, I know something amazing, that you sent your son Jesus who came and he died a a death that I deserve to die. And he willingly took that and shed his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. And I am putting all of my faith and trust in Jesus and him alone, his sacrifice paying for my sins, his resurrection where death was declared defeated and and you gave him the authority to give me new life right here and now. I'm trusting in Jesus and him alone as my savior, the one and only way for me to be brought back to you, secured for eternity. With everybody's eyes closed, If you prayed today to to put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something bold so that I can come alongside you, so I can celebrate with you. I'm going to ask you real quick, if you prayed today to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, just to boldly, real quick, just raise up your hand. Because I want to come alongside you. I want to talk to you. I want to meet with you. And I want to celebrate with you and help you understand what this means. If you have questions about what this means and what this looks like, and, and why we need this and why we would talk about this. If you've got questions about what it truly takes to be saved, come and talk to me afterwards. I want to talk to you. But those of you that raised up your hands, come and see me so I can celebrate with you and, and come alongside you in this and begin walking in this journey together because we, we have something incredible to celebrate. God, we thank you that today there are some in this room who have put their faith in Jesus, who have trusted the one and only way for them to be saved, knowing God now that there is nothing that can separate them from you. They are brought back in. They are filled and sealed by your Holy Spirit. God, we praise you and we join with the angels in celebration of that. God, I pray for, for those of us that are here that we would stop fearing trusting you, God. 
that we would no longer be afraid to trust, God, but we would see the ways that you work, the ways that you have worked, God. We would see your character, your nature, and we would realize that you are trustworthy, God, even when things don't go the way that we thought they should or the way that we wanted them to. But God, you are trustworthy and your plan is good and pleasing and perfect. Help us to hold to that, to trust you in that and to walk in that, God. I pray that you, God, as we celebrate communion, would speak to our hearts about areas that we've been holding back trust in you. Because, God, we felt that you're unworthy or that you don't know us or, or, or hear us. God, that we've given up on you. Help us to have our eyes opened and to walk out of here with a boldness, God, that engages us more into our faith and the reality that you are trustworthy, God. Help us to reflect on your proof of that that you showed us on the cross. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.